0: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church.
1: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? You're um, always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other
0: co-host, Matt Bernico.
1: There's a lot going on in the world these days. Uh, headline after headline, tweet after tweet. Uh, Elon Musk, he's ruining Twitter, apparently. Speaking of tweets, um, I'm using it less and less anyway these days, so it's hard to tell. COP27 is going on. Midterm elections came and went. Uh, but we're going to ignore all that stuff. And we're going to keep talking about political philosophy. It's what we do best. We're kind of on a roll. I guess we're, I don't know, if I can't tell if we're being lazy or working harder. It's just uh, we're talking about what we know. And it feels comfortable Um, A few weeks ago, we did this episode on Marx and wage labor And this week, we're going to get back into Marx We're going to talk about primitive accumulation Everybody's favorite topic in in Capital And we're going to do so much more We're going to talk about how Christians resisted and so on Before we even get there, though Matt, how's it going? What's going on this week with you? All the headlines are doing whatever they're doing But what's going on in the old uh, Bernico brain? Um,
0: Just, I'm trying to take it easy this week, I had a really crazy last week and a really crazy week before that. So just trying to just trying to keep it keep it chill. I've been playing Skyrim a lot. Just that's a that's a very good. <laughs> it's my good chill out game um, where I can uh, I can be the Dragonborn and eat people um, as a vampire. And it's great. That's why I need in my life. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's Dude, right. What do you been on, up to?
1: Uh, Man, pretty much the same. We're on a downward slope uh, for work as Advent is getting closer and closer. The best thing about working in a Christian social movement is everybody quits around Advent. (laughs) And I love that. (laughs) Um, You can't get anyone to do anything. And that means I can't do as many things. And that's great news for me. So really appreciating that. Oh, man, I booked a trip to Cuba. I'm going to go in December. And I'm very excited about it. So that's pretty much all I'm doing with all my spare time is reading about Cuba, watching documentaries about Cuba, listening to music from Cuba, listening to radio stations in Cuba that I can't understand because my Spanish is bad. But uh, I guess I just have some naive hope that it will help me (laughs) some way or other. And uh, yeah, that's my whole life is Cuba, Cuba, Cuba.
0: That's great. Well, um, I'm excited that you're going. I wish I was going. That sounds fun. Um, but I hope you run into Don Feliciano down I'm there sure uh, in this in these these great winter months. Yeah, hopefully he'll he'll bring you uh, a great socialist Christmas present. Yeah,
1: we'll uh, leave our shoes out or whatever it is you do. Man, for folks who don't know, Don Feliciano is kind of a very deep cut. I feel like for this podcast, um, Don Feliciano uh, in in Cuba. As you can imagine, when the revolution succeeded, they were like, we don't want this imperialist Christmas holiday around here. And so Fidel Castro was like, listen, Cubans basically don't even like Christmas. Everything they do is on epiphany in January, which is actually true. That's like a common thing in Latin America. Christmas was not a huge deal in the uh, 50s and 60s. And so he said, you know, don't worry about it. You don't need that Coca-Cola holiday Santa Claus coming around here. And nevertheless, in a kind of concession to uh, you know people's desire to celebrate at Christmas, they invented this amazing character, Don Feliciano, who is this like mystical peasant who wanders around giving every child exactly one gift.
0: And I do love that. He's like he looks like Santa Claus, but he has like a Hawaiian. <laughs> And uh, and like a straw hat. Yeah, exactly. So I will keep an eye out. I'm coming back on like the
1: 23rd or something. So uh, maybe, you know, we'll just miss each other. I'll I'll look for him in the sky. I don't think he has like a sleigh or anything, but he must sort of. I don't know, wander around in a big 1950s Cuban car that, you know, flies through the air or something like
0: that. There is a there's a critical lack of information on the Internet about Don Feliciano, though. (laughs) And uh, you need to ask people about him and see if there's any Mm -hmm. if there's any um, remnants of Don Feliciano (laughs) culture left or or not. I will. I'll look. Yeah, good, good. Really important. You can report back about that
1: when it happens. And I know since you're not going, I'll put in a good word for you and we'll see what
0: Don Feliciano has under the tree. Yeah, thanks. If you could just catapult a gift over here to me, I'd be really thankful for that. (laughs) That's right. We'll get it over the blockade. Um, So,
1: uh, like I said, we're talking, though, this time around about primitive accumulation. We'll talk about Don Feliciano again later, I'm sure. Um, The goal of this episode is really to kind of think more deeply about the story that we tell ourselves and that people try to tell us about private property Accumulation and capitalism to kind of see some instances where Christians have sorted this out themselves. One really cool thing about the way that Marx tells the story of capitalism is that he kind of historicizes it. Capitalism didn't come out of nowhere. It's not just a natural thing baked into our reality. It had to be done, and it was done. It had to be made. It was done in a violent way. And there were Christians right at the beginning of it being like, this is actually a very bad idea. Uh, so from the beginning, capital worked its, its dark deeds to separate people from the means of production, but Christians have also found themselves in opposition to that kind of understanding of property and carving up the world in private ways. So in this episode, we're going to look a little bit at what Marx says about primitive accumulation and how Christians have been trying to uh, mess that up <laughs> since the beginning of uh, the dawn of capitalism. So, Matt, uh, why don't you get us started here? And give us a little overview. What is going on in primitive accumulation?
0: I'm so glad you asked. I'm really excited to tell you. So capitalism as like a discrete entity in the world, <laughs> is a hard thing to kind of nail down. It's a hard down It's a hard thing to lock down with an easy definition, um, because it's you know not one thing. It's like a big system that regulates how capital flows and to who it flows and from where it flows. But like it's a lot of moving parts, is what I'm trying to say here. Capitalism is like a lot of things, but among those things, I think it is definitely a story that we tell ourselves about the world. And here is an example. The other day I was on Twitter and I was dunking on Elon Musk, and someone said, Yeah, but he is a billionaire and more more successful than you. And like, um, you know, you you've not done anything important in the world. And look at all the things that Elon Musk has done. And um, that's dumb. Clearly a dumb way of thinking, but this person went on to explain, um, you know, he's he's done so much with the money that he has. And like, isn't that amazing? Um, But never once did this person stop and like, you know, think about that statement for a second and explain, you know, where did that money come from? How did Elon Musk come to be a guy who owned things? And, um, you know, it's because there's no mission in the story, right? That's the part of capitalism that people don't really want to talk about because uh, it doesn't fit neatly into the story of capitalism in the first place. Right. Elon Musk is is a very rich guy because his dad bought an emerald mine in South Africa.
1: <laughs> apartheid South Africa.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Apartheid South Africa is a very important part of it. So, right, like, so Elon Musk is not rich because he is, like, a really savvy businessman. Elon Musk is rich because his dad bought an emerald mine in apartheid Africa. Um, and that part of the story is really important. Um, but instead, capitalists love to talk about how, you know, they got there through hard work and determination and all kinds of stuff like that, right? Um, so capitalism uh, is a particular story that we tell ourselves about the world, but there's no mission in that story. Um And the omission is always, how do people come to own the means of production in the first place? How do you come to own a diamond mine in the first place? How do you come to own the fields or a mine or a river or whatever? How does all that happen, right? Um, And capitalists can tell you, well, you know, I bought it, I invested my money and so on. But, like, it still doesn't really answer the question, right? How is it that you could even buy something like a field or, um, or a river or a mine? Like, how is that even possible, right? And to me, this is always, like, the question about capitalism because without the privation of, um, of land, of, uh, you know, means of production of capital, there can't really be a capitalism at all, right? You need to, you need to find ways to, like, <laughs> um, expropriate the means of production before you can have people even start working for you. Um, because after all, as we talked about in a previous episode, even uh, wage labor itself, right, labor power is a, is a commodity that you have to buy from uh, workers as a capitalist. So it's like, how is it that capitalism comes to expropriate all of these things and, and make things into commodities and transform them into, into this world that you can buy and sell? So the way that Marx gets at this is by talking about this thing called primitive accumulation, um, Primitive accumulation is just like the the phrase that Marx uses to talk about how capitalists got the means of production in the first place. Um, there's a few places that we could kind of pick up the conversation in Marx, but I think the easiest place is chapter 26 of Capital, Volume One. You know, before
1: we even get into the big book of uh, political economy that Marx, uh, that Saint Marx did write and leave us, uh, inspired by the <laughs> Holy Spirit of socialism, communism. Um, I feel like maybe it's even worth kind of parsing out why this is important for Christians in particular this conversation right like how did capitalism come to own the means of production in the first place uh, is I think a significant issue because if you think about your own experience in church or in Christianity at least in my experience it's pretty rare that when the topic of wealth comes up or rich people come up or, or whatever it could be it's pretty rare that that topic kind of finds its way back to this idea that like Mm
0: -hmm. rich
1: people for there to be rich people at all, there had to be a historical process by which people could get rich by owning the means of production, by owning land, by owning factories, by owning people's labor. And I think that is huge too, because Marx calls it a myth that primitive uh, accumulation is kind of like waved away in the myth of capitalism as like two guys in a field who just get together and, make a transaction in complete freedom or whatever, abstracted from everything else. And Christians also love that myth. (laughs) Like, I mean, Christians are partly responsible for inventing it. You know, capitalism comes out of Christian countries. And I think that's huge too in an age of like the Dave Ramseys and I don't know, all these rich Christians kind of running around that there's a lot of stories that Christians tell about wealth that also rely on kind of waving away this history or erasing it or not even being familiar with it. And I think that is a shame, not only because it reproduces capitalism, but it also erases the, the Christian opposition to that. That this is kind of like an intra-family feud, I guess, <laughs> that Christians were having right at the beginning. So uh, I don't know, just kind of maybe just like putting a fine point on whenever, I, whenever we talk about Marx, I, I guess I just feel like compelled to explain why it's worth getting into the weeds. Because... Sometimes Marx can feel a little bit complicated or complex, like you can't just pick up capital and open it up to some place and hope that you kind of get it. You know, it is hard, but uh, I I just feel like it's like helpful to be like, look, Christians have a hard time thinking about this if they think about it at all. So just a good excuse maybe to be like, this is why Marx helps.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I mean, and there are particular Christian ways of telling the story, too, right, like about providence. And I mean, even manifest destiny in a lot of ways right. is, 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 you know, wrapped up in the story of of primitive accumulation. I mean, all kind. I mean, we could make the same case for all kinds of different Christian colonialism in the world, but, uh, it's worth pointing out. I think that, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Christians are very guilty of telling the story, but also some Christians are <laughs> not guilty. <laughs> I don't know, responsible <laughs> for telling the opposite story. I think that's just as interesting. All right. So now, Matt, please do get
1: us back into this, uh, this great good book that Karl Marx wrote.
0: <laughs> okay, sounds good. There's a lot of places to pick up this conversation about um, primitive accumulation in Marx, but we're going to talk about uh, Capital Volume 1, Chapter 26. The, uh, the title of the chapter in Capital is The Secret of Primitive Accumulation. I like this uh, title, though. Yeah, it's The Secret. Marx is letting you in on The Secret. Um, You never would have guessed. Uh, (laughs) This guy's got it figured out. Primitive accumulation plays in political economy about the same part as original sin in theology. Adam bit the apple, and thereupon sin fell on the human race. Its origin is supposed to be explained when it's told as an anecdote of the past. In times long gone by, there were two sorts of people, one, the diligent, intelligent, and above all, frugal elite. The other, lazy rascals spending their substance and more in riotous living. That's right. I know. That's, that's me. That's <laughs> me for sure. I'm playing Skyrim. Um, <laughs> Thus, it came to pass that the former sort accumulated wealth, and the latter sort had at last nothing to sell except their own skins. And nothing from this original sin dates the poverty of the great majority that, despite all its labor, has up to now nothing to sell but itself and the wealth of a few that increases constantly, although they have long ceased to work. All right. So Marx here is is laying out the secret. This is the secret. Um, Capitalists tell you a a very weird story about capitalism. Um, The story is capitalists are I mean, there are some people that are rich capitalists. Because they're hardworking, they're smart, they are good with their money, and people who are not rich, they are not rich because they are lazy, because they are spending all of their money on riotous living. I don't know what that is. I don't know what riotous living is, but it sounds awesome. I think it's Marx's actual life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If anyone is guilty of that, it is definitely Marx himself. Um, (laughs) Dear Angles, please send me ten more Um, (laughs) dollars. Yeah. Also, uh,
1: man, a great sidebar about Marx's riotous life. There are a lot of great biographies about Marx, and you should just read any of them, but... There's a really fun anecdote where, like, the uh, the British Crown sent some kind of, like, Secret Service person to just follow Marx around and keep tabs on what he was doing. And uh, the Secret Service guy, w- basically, his report was like, I'm exhausted. This guy's, like, out of control. He, like, sleeps all day. He's out partying all night. He just, like, drinks all the time. I don't know how he gets anything done. But, like, every once in a while, he just sits down and writes, like, for hours on end. Just a,
0: a wild <laughs> character. <laughs> a wild character for sure. Um, okay. A great sidebar. Definitely, definitely worth figuring that out. Uh, <laughs> seeing exactly where Marx falls into this equation. Um, but the point here is that uh, this is all a lie. It's made up. That's not... <laughs> rich people don't get rich because they're smart or more intelligent or harder workers. That's just not true. And if you don't believe me, I don't know, look around the world, man. <laughs> Elon Musk, there you go. He's a guy. and uh, He's not rich because he's smart. He's a big dingus <laughs> Um, But it's a it's a myth. It's mythology. And um, Marx decides that, well, instead of just kind of believing the hype, uh, he thinks that there's an actual historical basis for why it is that um, some people are rich and can buy things like fields and some people are poor and they have to sell their labor. So Marx says this. The so-called primitive accumulation, therefore, is nothing else than the historical process of divorcing the producer from the means of production. It appears as primitive because it forms the prehistoric stage of capital and of the mode of production uh corresponding to it okay so this is the really important piece of the puzzle here um in the story of primitive accumulation um capitalists have to find a way to transform the means of production into commodities that can be like sold that end up you know that they're divorced from the people who do the work um and that, that's an important piece of like moving from like this like feudal a feudal society to like a capitalist society, right? And um, to do this, you know, capitalists have to um, find ways to push people off land and transform the types of uh, work that people do uh, so that they can't just do them by themselves. Because if uh, if individual workers have access to land um, and they can do subsistence production, there's no way that you're going to get them to agree to wage labor because, like, why would they, right? If uh, If a person could... Um, just, you you know, had access to sort of common land they could grow food on. There's no way you could convince them to work a 12-hour or 16-hour day for, you know, very little money. So capitalists have to find ways to divorce workers from the means of production and then find ways to commodify all of those things um, so that uh, workers can sell their labor and capitalists can kind of benefit from the, um, you know, exploitative relationship that uh, results.
1: Right. And what is so interesting about this, too, is the biblical tradition and Jesus's own uh, ministry are I think you can make a pretty good case. And people have done it, <laughs> make it made that case that there is a real sense that the, the Bible kind of sees this happening and is constantly trying to like short circuit it over time in lots of different ways. The big one that we've talked about in kind of, I don't know, the last year or so probably is Jubilee. That every once in a while, on a kind of cycle, the Bible says that the economy should basically reset. That the lands have to go back to the people that had them seven years ago. And you got to start all over again. And so there's this kind of recognition that actually, if one kind of private entity accumulates too much wealth, then you're going to end up with a, a surplus population of people who don't live based on subsistence. And then they're basically their only kind of possible future is exploitation. And as we were talking about with the uh, Jesus parables a while back with the book uh, Parables as Subversive Speech, you can see so many of Jesus's parables are also kind of seeing the writing on the wall about primitive accumulation, like he's constantly sort of looking at how in the Roman economy, there are these seeds of capitalism of elites sort of jockeying with each other, fighting with each other to try to push peasants off of their land Um, to expropriate their land out from under them through, like, lending them debts that they can't pay. And then eventually they're like, ah, the peasant can't pay the debt, therefore the land is mine. That forces the peasant to have to find some other way of survival, right? They can't rely on the land that they knew how to farm. Instead, they need to find somebody who's going to buy their labor or feed them or whatever it might be. So there's this real kind of, you know, disconnect between... Uh, a human's need to survive and their ability to access the the means of survival for them which for the capitalist or proto-capitalist is a means of production so i think it's just kind of helpful to be like you know these are economies that are very very uh early or i guess uh, they predate capitalism by hundreds of years uh and nevertheless the the sort of economic mechanisms that would lead to capitalism are kind of intuited already in the bible and they're like look Don't do that. (laughs)
0: That's going to be really bad for you. So please don't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's um, speaking of the parables in uh, Mark, the parable of the wicked tenants um, is a story explicitly about um, primitive accumulation. Um, If you don't remember that episode, uh, basically, the idea of that parable was that there's a guy who um, who owns a vineyard. And that's an important piece of the story because um, a vineyard is a very hard thing to farm. The only way that you would do it is if you were a very wealthy person, because uh, grapes are a luxury crop that take years to sort of cultivate. Um, and uh, you wouldn't just if you were just like a peasant, you wouldn't have like a grape farm or whatever a, vi- a vineyard you might say <laughs> <laughs> i would yeah exactly so anyways that story ends up being about um the cycle of violence that uh primitive accumulation can often incite because it um you know it exploits the land it exploits workers and it also creates like um an intense class antagonism um that uh jesus warned people against not to like uh not to get involved in sort of the cycle of violence that it would uh, necessarily result in. And then, you know, do something different. All that's say, primitive accumulation is like an idea that is, it, it, you know, Jesus is, is talking about it in, in the gospels. It's a different economic system, right? An advanced agrarian economy is not capitalism, but um, some similar themes that are pretty easily to map onto one another.
1: Yeah. Well, what you see there, I guess, is the struggle of capitalism trying to get out from under um feudal kind of societies or agrarian societies, depending on the time period and economy. And, you know, to be clear, those economies also have all kinds of injustices in them as well. So it's not just being like, if only we turned back the clock and we were in ancient Rome and it would be fine. But right. just to say that there is this kind of, uh, you know, you can see the capitalist class uh, sort of trying to to come into form. Um, Marx goes on to kind of explain primitive accumulation in a way that I think is really helpful here. So he says, the capitalist system presupposes the complete separation of the laborers from all property in the means by which they can realize their labor. So trying to take workers off of the the kinds of land that they can use to reproduce themselves, their lives. As soon as capitalist production is once on its own legs, it not only maintains this separation, but reproduces it on a continually extending scale. The process, therefore, that clears the way for the capitalist system can be none other other than the process which takes away from the laborer the possession of his means of production. A process that transforms, on the one hand, the social means of subsistence and the production into capital, on the other, the immediate producers into wage laborers. The so-called primitive accumulation, therefore, is nothing else than the historical process of divorcing the producer from the means of production. Right? So the idea is uh, trying to kick people off of their land. Like Matt said, you're not going to want to... uh, uh sell your labor if you can just keep on living on the land that you know and then secondly the only way that you have to survive at that stage is to get a wage which you can then use to buy commodities which are produced because some capitalists took somebody's land and decided to do something with it
0: yeah that's right um it kind of like a i mean it's uh the mythology is so complex and stupid when you think about it, because this is actually such a straightforward story. <laughs> I guess <laughs> right. Um, it seems like capitalists uh, make it harder than it needs to be. The moral of Marx's story of primitive accumulation is that, like any place, capitalists can separate workers from the means of production. You've got, you know, you've got a primitive accumulation going on. You've, you've got capitalism doing its thing, like finding ways to. Um, uh, transform, uh, you know, what would be subsistence production into like capitalist production, um, you know, into surplus production. So this is a story that gets repeated everywhere, right? Marx's story centers on feudal Europe, but we just talked about how it's in the gospel. It's in these like, <laughs> you know, these um, proto-capitalist societies, but it's also like, um, it's also a trend that happens like continually, right? The, the transformations that capitalism kind of like um, causes are, are ongoing, Man, I couldn't tell you actually when on this podcast we did this, but years ago now <laughs> we, we read a book together called Caliban and the Witch uh, by Silvia Federici, who's one of those great Italian feminist Marxists. Um, anyway, she has uh, quite a few sections about structural adjustment programs um, initiated by the IMF, the International Monetary Fund in Africa. And, I mean, it's that story, but it's, it's the same story of capitalist primitive accumulation, but it's playing out, you know, not in the feudal era, but but now, right? Capitalism will always kind of do this thing. It, it always does whatever it takes to separate workers from, the, the, from their subsistence, from the means of production, so that it can concentrate the means of production into the hands of, like, the bourgeoisie, and it can commodify everything <laughs> so that everyone has to sell their labor, right? When we talk about the way – when we talk about capitalism having sort of a logic, logic of accumulation, like, this is kind of what we're talking about, right? This, like, this theme, this tendency, this um, mechanism within capitalist political economy – to always be seizing more and transforming the entire world into something that can be commodified um, and, um, and you know, bought and sold to, um, to you know, the capitalist class. So I, I guess that that's the story of primitive accumulation. And it's not, um, I say all that just to, just to make it clear that it's not something that just happened in feudal Europe. It's something that happens now all over the place in, in all kinds of different, you know, nuanced ways. Right. I mean, I think uh,
1: it's really easy to forget exactly how recent capitalism is, first of all, and how much of the world is not drawn into it in the same way that we might be in an advanced capitalist country like Canada or the United States. Like, for example, you know, the, like for decades and decades, for most of the 20th century, the majority of the world was just not proletarianized, which is to say people just didn't sell their labor to get a wage. Uh, most people lived on subsistence kind of land or, you know, unfortunately, starved to death, right? Like they were not drawn into the working class in in any respect. And today that is still the case. I mean, the world is changing all the time. The economy is changing. The needs of capitalists are changing. And accordingly, there are productive forces that are kind of built up around the world But the kind of need for capitalists to keep separating people from their ability to reproduce their lives on their own using whatever kind of means they have, uh, that need has not gone away. And, you know, it's not going to (laughs) for a very, very long time. Uh, And there are people on the front lines of those struggles. Like I always think of the MST in Brazil, the landless movement that is constantly trying to advocate for the, the breaking up of big private land. And the return to the commons of that land, a kind of reversal of this process, or uh, even Pope Francis's kind of theme of uh, land, work and housing. That's like his big thing that everybody should have access to those three things implicit. There is also a a critique of the sort of. fallout of this process right uh, capitalism does not give everybody land work and housing it uh, takes people's land it uh, compels some of them to work and requires a lot of them not to work and it commodifies housing it doesn't see housing as a, a human right it sees it as something to be bought and sold so uh, just to kind of say yeah it's it's a process that's ongoing and um, also there are Christians still out there
0: saying we shouldn't do that yeah that's true I'm out here saying it. So there's at least one of us. <laughs> <laughs> um okay, I think that what's weird about that though, like it, this seems kind of like um maybe a childish response and I feel okay with that. Um you know, you hear that story of capitalism um about primitive accumulation and you're kind of just like left wondering though like what why is it that way? <laughs> like um you know, why can somebody buy a um a field or a mine? Why can somebody do that? Like, why can some like one person out there just say like, Hi, I own this now? <laughs> like, why is that possible? Um, I think that like, when you talk about primitive accumulation in terms of Marx, at least that's where my brain goes. And it seems like I said, a little bit immature, because um, it's such such a basic question to ask. But there's really not a very good capitalist answer apart from like, capitalists want to make money. <laughs> like, that's it, right? Um, it's there there may be some other ways that capitalists come up to um you know figure this out like maybe uh they might argue that uh the private ownership of land um you know is is more efficient in terms of production or something and that could be true um but it still is i mean i think a a weird idea at its base that one person could just decide they own like a piece of a river and then um <laughs> and then like that's it right um, all that to say, uh, these childish questions, um, they're silly, maybe maybe I'm like an idiot for not understanding, but also there's a whole lot of other Christians, not a whole lot, but there are some other Christians in the world who I think have asked really similar questions or have told different stories about uh, accumulation and capital, especially when it comes to land. Um, and I think those are really fascinating, the ways that uh, Christians have sort of found um, within their own tradition um ways to maybe counter this or just to like um, at least uh, problematize the, uh, the capitalist accumulation of, of everything. Um, One of the Christians, I mean, there's a few that we can talk about here, but um, one of the Christians, I think um, one of the, not the oldest for sure um, in the (laughs) tradition of Christianity, but I think one of the most interesting in the history of Christianity and Christians who kind of like problematize private property is Gerard Winstanley. Um, Jardwin Stanley is a very interesting English figure um from like this like 1640s. Um, and when Stanley is most associated with an organization, well, a group of people, not an organization like (laughs) (laughs) like uh like a trade union or something. But it's like yeah, exactly. He's the thought leader behind the diggers. (laughs) Um Gerard Wynn Stanley, he wrote like political tracts that focused on um, improving conditions for people in poverty through the cultivation of the of like common land. And beyond that, he th- thought that, um, you know, you could uh, create an entire society that's centered on the idea of common ownership. Um, that's all based on sort of a theological assumption that God made the world to be what he calls a common treasury for all people to share. Um and that's cool. So, uh, like I said, he's, he's this guy associated with the diggers. The diggers are themselves a reaction to the project of the enclosures in England. So just like Marx is writing about, um, if you want people to sell you their labor power, you've got to separate them from the means of production or else they won't do it because why would they? So the diggers are a part of a movement of people who like fought back against that separation and that like alienation and expropriation of land. There were others, too, like the levelers, but um, the levelers, uh, the, the diggers and the level, levelers split because the levelers weren't quite um, against private property enough. <laughs> um, so anyways, the diggers rebranded themselves as the true levelers, and then they went on to be known as the diggers um, as well. The The idea of leveling, though, was an actual like process of uh, tearing down the hedges that would enclose upon land. So, you know, like. Um, a lord or whoever of a particular plot of or a particular area would, you know, put up hedges to say this is now uh, private property, and you know, common people can't farm here.
1: Um, right? Maybe it's a it's good to pause and just uh, draw out that as well. Because okay, so the the logic that Mark is un- that Marx is uncovering. Mark, <laughs> what a weird guy, Mark. Uh, <laughs> the logic that Marx is uncovering here is that uh, you have to separate people from the land to turn them into wage laborers. But the story that he also pulls uh, off in his story in in Capital is about the actual process of that, of enclosing what is common. So there's lots of literature, as Matt was just saying, about you know the commons and uh, how they work and all that kind of stuff. But uh, in England, the sort of bourgeoisie they weren't quite that yet (laughs) the rich people let's say Uh, the rich people and the uh, royalty and nobility they all kind of got together and decided they wanted to uh, begin to expand the idea of private property in England and so as you said Matt they started putting up these kind of fences and hedges in order to block off certain parts of what was previously known as common land in order to say it's not common it's private. And what is so wild about that is this was a process that was actually pretty violent. So the diggers and the levelers and other folks would go around uh, digging up fence posts to say, no, it isn't. (laughs) No, it's not private. It's actually common. Too bad for you. And eventually that kind of all comes to a head. There are huge uh, battles even between these folks and the nobility. So it's like a violent process. And one thing that Marx points out is capitalists today often cover over that violence by saying, well, this is all kind of legal and above above board, which in a certain sense is kind of true. Um, it's violent, but it was done with the blessing of the crown and it was made legal. It was a legal process of expropriating land and of being violent, right? It was the police <laughs> or what would be the equivalent of the police uh, enforcing that private property. Uh, but what Marx says is we kind of like um, pacify it or assume that it's all sort of voluntary or everybody kind of agrees mm-hmm. this is a good process, right? And that's the kind of liberal capitalist myth that um, we do the same thing with colonialism, right? People kind of feel in maybe a default way that the the capitalist world that we live in in colonized countries is, you know, like, yeah, there was some violence back there, but, like, you know, all, all in all, it was some good founding fathers trying to just be the architects of these great nations, right? <laughs> it's it's all, like, extremely sanitized history. Um, rarely do you learn in school, or at least I didn't. Maybe it's different now, but, you know, you don't learn... You learn Columbus was a great explorer. You don't learn that Columbus was, like, actively genociding people in the Caribbean, you know? <laughs> like, that's not the story we tell. So Marx is trying to say the big piece of primitive accumulation that we forget is that there is a uh, violence at the heart of the beginning of capitalism. And the diggers are one kind of Christian uh, opposition to that process. Uh, they're the, the people willing to stand up to say that's not what we're about, right? They're carrying on that spirit of Jubilee, um, that kind of, uh, I guess, seeing the writing on the wall and the way that Jesus does in his parables, right? They're trying to say God gave everybody this land and therefore you can't put a big fence over here. That's no good. We're going to dig up that post.
0: Yeah, it's really great actually to bring up how violent that process is because it is not clear, I think, all the time. Especially especially not the way that capital works today. I think it's even like more opaque and obfuscated, the violence that uh, – you know, shifting people away from subsistence farming to surplus production. Like, I mean it's it's even it's like boring, right? It's even boring to talk about. It's like, you know, uh the IMF says that the country has to go through X, Y, and Z liberalization processes in the way that it produces, you know, these commodities. Has to do that because the country itself has taken out, you know, loans from the IMF. And in order to meet the standards of the IMF, you know, you have to do these things to be in compliance. And as a result, you know, people in, I don't know, whatever country, name one, n- name one so-called developing country and um, that the IMF is like meddling in. And then, um, you know, they have to switch up like a, a farming practice with the, that they've you know, undertaken for years and years. And and switch towards the production of some kind of like um, different type of crop or different type of use of land so that it can be easily subsumed into the capitalist system, and then people like will literally starve because they don't have subsistence farming anymore, right? So it's just like um, the capitalism. I think in at least the in this particular era, right, has has made um, primitive accumulation boring and mm-hmm. like outsourced it to these like global um, global banks that kind of do it and. And uh, I don't know. It's bad. It's bad and just as violent, but we don't think about it in the same way because yeah. uh, you know people aren't <laughs> the, because the diggers aren't like uh, knocking down fences or
1: whatever. Right. I mean, just to bring the example closer to home too. This example is not exactly primitive accumulation, but it is kind of um, of a piece with it. Like in British Columbia, right, in Sudan territory right now, uh, Coastal GasLink, this big shitty company is drilling under these waterways that are sacred to the Wet'suwet'en people. And it's very bad for all kinds of reasons. I mean, it is a clear violation of indigenous sovereignty. It is uh, ecologically destructive. Like, it's disrupting the the salmon in the river. And, like, you know, there is a pretty good chance that it will, like, poison the land and so on. So the Wet'suwet'en people are trying to resist as best they can. But Canada is such a bizarre country because like it wants to, on the one hand, affirm that indigenous peoples have a right to their lands and they're sovereign over them and so on. But it always it like explicitly legally retains the right to override indigenous sovereignty if it's in the interest of the the honor of the crown or like the, you know, the prosperity of the Canadian nation and so on, which always translates to awarding contracts to private companies. Right. Right. That's really what all that means. And, like, this is something that's going on out, So it's not primitive accumulation. Like, the the Watsudan people still technically have, like, the legal land claim to whatever their territory. But, like, it's the same logic that, at the end of the day, it's really the private interest of getting a pipeline through there that is calling all the shots, right? And it is a violent exchange. Like, the federal police are constantly raiding Watsudan camps. And, you know, it's it's bad news, like people are arrested and harmed and beaten and so on. So, like, again, I guess I'm just driving home the point that, like, it's not even like uh, out there. Right. In like the global south, it's like here too that (laughs) these things are, are going on. This kind of logic is going on all the time. And that's like the heart of capitalism is kind of the the violence that is needed to sort of continue to expand the interest of, you know, Rich people uh, and and like legally, like that's all above board that Coastal GasLink is doing this and like the Canadian state is providing the muscle to make sure that it happens.
0: Um, I've got to say that's bad and I don't like it and <laughs> it sucks. But uh, yeah, I think that you're right for pointing that out. It's kind of like a, a related um, a related practice of the way that capitalism has to sort of like subsume it all. Right. E- even at the expense of um, <laughs> legal land rights and all kinds of things like that. Um, Okay, so capitalists tell this particular story about accumulation. Um, why are they rich? Why are they wealthy? Why do they get to own the land? It's because they're smart, they're harder workers, etc. cetera. Um, that's what they say. And they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are other stories that people have told about private property, and they're right. Um, so we've been talking about Jardwin <laughs> Stanley and the diggers and enclosures and all this kind of stuff, and we have been off on several digressions, and I think that's fine. We're a podcast, and we can do that. Um, But here's a here's a a little bit of a quote from Jardwin Stanley from one of his tracks that he wrote. And you can kind of get an idea for what he's after. Um, Okay, so Jardwin Stanley writes this. In the beginning of time, the great creator reason made the earth to be a common treasury to preserve beasts, birds, fishes and man. And only those things. (laughs) (laughs) The four genders, The the four genders. (laughs) The Lord that was to govern this creation, for man had domination given to him over the beasts, bird, and fishes, but not one word was spoken in the beginning that one branch of mankind should rule over another. Um, He goes on to say this. Those that buy and sell land and are landlords have got it either by oppression, murder, or theft. And all landlords live in the breach of the seventh and eighth commandments. Thou shalt not steal nor kill. So um, this is a different story about private property and one that I think is a little bit more interesting, especially if you're, if you're a Christian person um, it's a, it's a funny twist, right? Um, uh, God created the world for beasts, birds, fishes, and men and not bugs. So important that bugs are not <laughs> in the list. I think Um <laughs> And uh, but but nowhere does it say that that, um, you know, humans should rule over other humans. And in fact, um, the humans that do that, uh, that um, that buy and sell land and who are landlords, um, they've done it in sort of breach of the seventh and eighth commandments. That is implying that, uh, you know, the the land is is stolen. And uh, to, to steal it, they had to kill people probably. So, I don't know, Drugwin Stanley has a pretty compelling point here. Uh the earth is a thing that was cre- I mean, even if you want to take the take the religious part out, right? The earth was a thing that was created and um to to start like uh carving it up and dividing it up sort of like arbitrarily just because like somebody has uh a militia to like guard it or whatever is a uh I, I mean, it, you have to recognize that it is like <laughs> a sort of like artificial pattern of thought forced on on land and and maybe not um not an, an inherent idea that um just exists in the world right somebody had to do that work somebody had to go out there and kill people and steal land it's not just <laughs> like this way because it's this way
1: right That's the big thing, too, about that Christian mythology that you get in Dave Ramsey, right? (laughs) Like uh, rich people are rich because they're smart and they're frugal and they don't, I don't know, have credit card debt and they use this weird envelope system to budget their money and so on. Right. That's why rich people are rich. Uh, And uh, capitalism is capitalism because it's just the natural way. It's what God wants for human beings. And I think what Marx, but also Win Stanley, is saying is actually that's not what God wants for human beings. God probably did not want for the nobility of England to just start carving up the the land and, you know, leaving people to starve or, like, sell their labor to somebody else. That's probably not actually what God's plan was. And capitalism has never been formed in a nonviolent and peaceful way. It wouldn't make sense. It's just not a peaceful thing to uh, get people to give up their livelihood. And, you know, go work a, a shitty job for shitty pay for like subsistence level uh, existence, you know, based on whether or not a capitalist wants to to pay them. So I think it's important to always say that, that like there from the beginning, the opening salvos of capitalism, you know, assaulting the population, assaulting the people in the land. There have been Christians there, too, being like. This is not right. (laughs) Like, this doesn't make sense, you know? Um, And like you said, Matt, I like that word, the artificiality of it. Like, to point out that it is made also is to point out that it could be unmade. Every post that's put in the ground can be dug up, and that's what the diggers went around actually doing physically, right? They were like, well, you put this here, so I guess we could just take it out. (laughs) They're both decisions that human beings are making, And I think it's too important to see this as a a kind of conflict of theologies Um, when Stanley is kind of carrying forth this idea that Christians have a responsibility to preserve that commonality of the world, to not transgress the commonality of the world. And the uh, sort of crown and what becomes colonial theology says that actually Christians have an obligation to make the world productive at all costs. And if you're not part of making it productive, then basically we have a, a license to remove you from it. Right? That's the story of England first colonizing Ireland by saying these uh Irish people don't know how to get all the outputs from their land and so therefore we should resurvey it and then we're gonna take it over and we're gonna colonize it because that's like a God given duty to make the land fruitful. And that's a logic you see uh, repeated all throughout the colonial adventures of uh, at least the Anglo kind of colonial experience. That kind of logic is like up front and center. So I think it's important to see that this is like two diverging Christian theologies as well. And you know what? I think when Stanley,
0: he was the right one. He was on the right
1: side of that problem.
0: Yeah. That's right. So it's not just this this wild English guy, though, either. There's other Christians that have kind of taken up this uh, same idea about... Um, possession and ownership and private property in some interesting ways. So uh, here's a really important example from the early church. So there's this guy, St. Basil, you might have heard of him, Basil of Caesarea. He died in 379, um, but he's like one of those like extremely orthodox sort of church fathers, right? He was like a, a monastic and he was against all these heretics, you know, all, all the all the regular church father kind of stuff, <laughs> right? Um, but also, interestingly enough, uh, extremely against uh, the idea of private property. And uh, here's a great quote from him. Were you not naked when you came out of the womb? Will you not be naked when you returned to the earth? Where did the things you now possess come from? If you say they just appeared spontaneously, then you're an atheist because you're not... Because you do not acknowledge the Creator and show no gratitude towards the one who gave them to you. But if you say they are from God, tell us the reason why you receive them. Or is it that God is unjust because he unequally divides among us the things in this life? Why are you rich while the other man is poor? Is it not perhaps so that you might receive wages for kind heartedness and faithful stewardship, and so that he may be honored with great prizes and because of his endurance? Then he goes on to say a little bit more. But as for you, when you hoard all those things in the insatiable bosom of greed, do you suppose that you do nothing wrong in cheating so many people? Who is a greedy man? Someone who is not content with what is sufficient. Who is a cheater? Someone who takes what belongs to others. And you are not a greedy man and you are not a cheater when you take the things that you receive for the sake of stewardship and uh, make them your own. Anyone who takes a man who is clothed and renders him naked would be termed a robber. But does someone who fails to clothe the naked when he is able to do so deserve any other appellation? I think this is this is pretty good stuff because um it's it's the same logic that we're seeing with with Winstanley, right? There's this idea that like the things that you have, um, possessions are like kind of happenstance in some ways. And if uh, you know, you have them, they come from God, it's great. And if you say otherwise you're an atheist, that's all very fun um but uh i like the idea though that like if you have what is sufficient and you're not kind of giving what's left over to other people that's actually greedy um and cheating <laughs> some some strong words for sure but um there's this idea kind of latent within Basil's thinking that is really interesting um because like it's recognizing that possessions um don't just appear spontaneously and the uh, the division of of possession does not also happen spontaneously. It's you know there's something to it. Someone's um, the distribution of wealth is not like on accident. It's uh, it's because people are kind of doing it in a particular way. Right. And Basil
1: goes on to say uh, in that same quote, "The bread you're holding back belongs to the hungry. The coat you keep in your closet belongs to the naked." The shoes moldering in your closet belong to the shoeless. The silver you hide in a safe place belongs to the needy. Thus, the more there are whom you could help, the more there are whom you are wronging. And there's the same kind of intuition you see in Win Stanley that it's a common treasury for everybody, that it's not meant to be uh, hoarded away and nobody should be going without. And in fact, if you have more, it's an indication that somebody is being wronged. And I think this is, a, as you said, Matt, it's kind of a pattern in Christian theology, and you see it all over the place. I mean, you see it in someone as orthodox as, uh, as Basil here. You see it in a reformer like Win Stanley. You see it in a, another radical reformer like Thomas Munzer leading the, the peasants, the German peasants, against the princes. Uh, the rallying cry for them was omnia sunt communia, that all things are in common. But that's a, a standard kind of trope that comes through. And it even makes its way in a you know a kind of particular way into Catholic social teaching that you see it in what the uh, the popes have written in the um, Catholic social teaching tradition about the common good. And Pope Francis has, I think, kind of put the the pedal to the metal on that stuff, right? To say that, uh, as he does in Laudato Si', that the right to private property is not an inviolable right, and in fact, when it conflicts with the common good, the common good just takes. Uh, priority. Like, you know, it's not a, a sort of competition among, well, both these things are important principles and you kind of have to weigh them out in your weird moral theological calculus to figure out what's the best. It's pretty straightforward. Um, private property, even in the Catholic Church, which affirms the right to private property, nevertheless is subordinated to this, the common good that, and the common destination of goods as well. So I think it's important to kind of see that this is like a habitual pattern in the church. And you know, like it's not to say that (laughs) habits are automatically right or whatever, but it's to say that there's something really like profound about saying creation is for everybody. And that means that you can't really like, you know, take it for yourself and then forget everybody else. You, you owe something to those folks who don't have anything. And that's a choice that we've made as a society to create a world where it's like that, you know, it's not God who's unjust because he unequally divides among things uh, in this life, uh, it's us, it's humans who are unjust, and uh, we have to, you know, figure out what to do with that, I think, as Christians in a world of <laughs> ongoing primitive
0: accumulation. Yeah, for sure. It is really interesting to see how the, like, you know, just the idea that there is sort of like a God sort of led um, when Stanley and Basil and others to this kind of like interesting insight. I think that's really, I don't know, it shows you how it shows you the ways that Christianity is actually capable of producing radical thought. And um, <laughs> it's just nice to be reminded of the of the very basic parts of it sometimes, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's cool. Um, I I don't know. These things are so important to kind of draw out, um, even though they are kind of weird niche histories. But like um, Christianity has something that's been I don't know. At least a, a lot of Christianity is in the United States in North America has been taken over by um, capitalist ideologues. And it is really cool to see uh, the ways that other Christians throughout history have told alternative stories um, about these same topics. So um, I don't know. Always just a nice reminder that like, there is a different. There's a different way of being Christian possible, and other people who are far more orthodox than Dave Ramsey have like got it figured out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and maybe that's to uh, an important piece as
1: well to recognize that for the diggers um, and for Munzer and for a lot of others, uh, including closer to our own time, right? People like the the Sandanistas in Nicaragua uh, or you know Christians in in Brazil or Bolivia. Uh, there's a sense in which like being telling a different story about capitalism should also compel us to do something else to get rid of a system that requires us to kind of all be conscripted into this myth that like your stational life is where you're at because of, I don't know, your your laziness or or your merit or whatever. But rather to say instead, the system distributes opportunity uh means of survival means of production, uh, unjustly. And, you know, like we should do more than tell that story. The story should motivate us to, to do something, to dig up the fence posts or, you know, figure it out. So, uh, I think that's helpful too, to, to say, uh, what does that story compel us to in the 21st century when we're still dealing with, uh, this kind of process, you know, the, the fence posts are, are still being put in the ground and a lot of us are still living, uh, you know, outside of them. How do we kind of dig those up?
0: Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you do that, uh, and you support us at $2 or more, I think it is, you get an invite to our very cool uh, behind-the-paywall Discord where we talk about all kinds of things, and it's good. It's a good community of people who are pretty active and interested in talking about, I don't know, everything. Lots of uh, great recipes, too. So that's been really fun (laughs) to see see those. Um, all right, our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro music is by Theological Spoon, and we'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. That we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late, oh, don't mind the cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would've